Hola, pod peeps across the digital domain. It's the Deacon's Pod, where spirituality and justice meet real American life in the 21st century. I'm Deacon Dennis. Say hello to my co-conspirators, Paulist affiliate Deacons, Deacon Tom and Deacon Drew. Welcome to episode three of the Deacons podcast. We are recording this Easter Wednesday. Thanks for being with us and thanks for telling your friends about our podcast. We appreciate you very much. So now we're just going to check in with the guys and see where we're at. Hello, Dennis. How are you doing today? I'm good, Drew. How are you? I'm good. Is yeah. Tom here? Yes, Tom. Tom is here. Oh, West Virginia. And I have internet today because it's partly cloudy. So we're doing well here today. Yeah. Say yeah, hello it, to Senator Manchin for us. See how he's yes, doing. Yes, I did do the uh, novena for him today, but I, it's, <laughs> it didn't arrange the temperature. Uh-huh. The temperature is a little bit frigid here today. Not like Wiki well, Watch. It's, well, it's, I was going to say it's 84 and lovely here today, so <laughs> I'll enjoy your share of that, Tom. We're about 30 degrees less than that. Yeah. Well, it's 58 in New Jersey. And, uh, you and, you know, it's a little damp and chilly, but it'll get better. So, Dennis and Drew, I am so happy that you are both doing well and have survived another Lenten season. I am interested in sharing what spiritual reading that you engaged in over this Lenten season. In my case, I rediscovered part of that uh, Thomas of Beckett. The Imitation of Christ. I found some interesting reading in there and profound reflections about life and our earthly journey and the virtues that we're supposed to cultivate. So for me, it was a a good refresher course. Yeah, I read a lot of Thomas Merton and and I read a lot of Gregory Hillis writing about Thomas Merton. I don't know if you guys know Professor Gregory Hillis. He's a professor at Bellarmine University. And he is one of the authorities, I think, right now on, on Thomas Merton. And is a wonderful book, Man of Dialogue, and really lays Merton out. His theme and thesis, if you will, of the book is to demonstrate that Thomas Merton was not some crazy, wild-eyed person who did not want to be a Catholic. In fact, he was deeply immersed in the Catholic faith, in the Eucharist particularly. And despite any exploration of the Eastern spirituality, he was first and foremost a holy Roman Catholic. Mm-hmm. Mm. So, and so I, I got a lot out of that, similar to what Tom just said in, in terms of what he was reading, that it kind of brought me back to a more centered faith. Yeah. Merton was just ahead of his time. You know, the thing about Merton is sure. like, you know, if you look at church teaching on the highest levels now, since his death in 68, he hasn't been wrong yet. Where all the rest of us are catching up with him, you know, he was like, oh, what do you, you know, the whole interfaith dialogue, you know, that was just, yes. I mean, we didn't, when Merton was talking to Zen Buddhists, we weren't prepared to talk to Baptists. I mean, that's where we were. So this guy was just, yeah. again, that prophetic thing that came up, that comes up when we talk to a friend, for example, in our upcoming interview, you know, that's a very important part of it too. My, just briefly, I read an interesting book called, I think it's called A Day in the Life of the Desert Fathers. Mm. And, you know, you have the sayings of the fathers of the desert. Well, this is a scholar who puts together what their life was like 
not just the sayings, but you know, how did they live? Sure. And what you know, how often you know, where did they go, and how did they? You know, it was really quite. Man, these guys were not fooling around. I mean, this is do talk about a tough life. These guys, geez. So that was kind of interesting. And I read Father Frank DeCiano's book on the spirituality and the kingdom that's just come out, which we'll probably be talking about at some point with him, which was very good, very nourishing. Spiritual reading is so important. You know, it's just like people wonder, gee, my spiritual life isn't what it should be. Well, you know, it's like you take your car to the mechanic. Car's not running so good. First thing he asks is, you got gas in the tank? I mean, before we tear it apart, is there gas? Did you put gas in it? And you find out, well, no. Really? I'm supposed to put gas in it? Yeah, let's put some gas in it and see if we can get it to turn over. And that's what spiritual reading I always thought was. If, you don't, if you're not doing it, then, you know, you can expect it to be sputtering and coming to a grinding halt. And in general, my Lent, I would say, was once again a confrontation with my own weakness and inability because, you know, I and I used to get upset by this. You know, you start off Lent, you know, it's like New Year's resolutions kind of. I'm going to do That's this, right. I'm going to do exactly. that. You know, I'm gonna, we're going to get serious here. I'm going to quit fooling around, yeah. isn't that? And about three weeks in, you're dropping a ball on this. You didn't quite get to that. Bop, 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 And then by Holy Week, you're telling the baby Jesus, it all fall apart, Lord. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what's the matter with me. I know every year I understand we have this conversation. But, you know, and that used to upset me. But now I find it reaffirming that, you know, I am relying on grace and the mercy of God. I'm not going to earn this. I'm doing the best I can. And that's a sad thing, the best I can, apparently. But I made me more grateful for God's mercy. So it's a confrontation with my own lack of being a spiritual superman, even with my best of intentions. And just all well, again, I think, like you say, that it's that fight with ego. I want to do better and I can't. <laughs> like that commercial, you know, I'm up to my eyeballs and dead. Somebody help me that was playing a while ago. Like, ah, I'm just a lost soul. And, and recognizing that's the case. And the only person that's surprised is the individual because the good Lord isn't surprised. At all. Right. Right. We're all in this. We're all in the boat. <laughs> we're all in the yeah. boat. Yeah. I tried to pick uh, one thing that I would really work on in terms of what I consider to be my faults as opposed to my virtues. No, if you like, I'll tell you what I think my virtues are, but I don't really hear either one. We don't have time for that long. (laughs) (laughs) But in terms of my faults, I just always try to really work on one thing. Not always, but this Lent I I try to. And, you know, I'd say I did pretty good for about, how long is Lent? Six weeks. days. Yeah, I was pretty good for about three days. Yeah. It's like New Year's resolution. New Year's resolution. It doesn't take long, man. I don't even make New Year's resolutions anymore. I know, right? You're giving up on that. I realized a long time ago, that's amateur play. It's like New Year's night is amateur night for drinkers. Right. We've kind of brought ourselves down here talking about Lent and how bad we are. So let's let's lift ourselves up and go to the interview with Fran Rossi Spilson. I mean, she is a good person with a lot of nice wonderful qualities, and I think we should explore them right now. Yeah, Fran is the diggity bomb. Today we're speaking with <laughs> Fran Rossi Spilson. Woo! Prize for yeah. you. <laughs> I've been practicing it all morning. I knew uh, you would be. Who is currently, and Fran will correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I've got all this right, currently the pastoral associate for administration at the Immaculate Conception Church in Glenville, New York. And she got there by a really interesting route that we're going to talk about today. She's a writer. She's an editor. She is a blogger. Still a blogger, Fran? 
So I'm kind of a lazy blogger. <laughs> okay. She's a retreat leader, which I have some questions about vis-a-vis -vis the pandemic. Yeah. Well, and I've retreated from it, I think, for a bit. She's an executive, I think an editor, and maybe, I'll, and she can correct me on this one, at Clear Faith Publishing. Um, they actually the social media and marketing consultant for that. So, okay, that makes sense. She's a writer that if you've been paying any attention to Catholic media, you've seen her for here and there. She's been published in America Magazine. She has periodical reflections in Give Us This Day. And she's on Twitter. And I think this is right. At Fran Slava Ukraini Spilson. <laughs> At, well, Fran, really at Fran Spilson is the actual one. The actual one. You said at the Fran other one in for the time being. Okay. So anyway, we are delighted that you're joining us today, Fran. You're famous in our eyes, and we're going to see if we can find <laughs> out why that is and what we can do to emulate you. So, and I know my colleagues here, Dennis and Tom. Nice to meet you, Fran. I have not been a follower of yours on Twitter or any of that media. I'm uh, I break things when I go into them, so I'm very careful what I do. But what got my attention is your tagline as to what your focus is, as you talk about where faith meets real life. And to be honest, that's, that's a quest that we're all trying to figure out what where that intersection is, Main Street and Vatican Avenue. What's your approach to that? How do you see those two intersecting in a way that people care about? Well, I think in... Possibly because I myself was away from church for a very long time. And if you had told me in 1990-ish that not only would I return to church, but that I would end up working here, I would have laughed very heartily and just felt, you know, that would just be ridiculous sounding. And of course, God loves ridiculous sounding proposals. So well, here I we think, are. Here are three of us. <laughs> the thing I think about that intersection is that it is very, especially if people are away from church, you know, maybe they've been hurt by the church or just drifted away and it doesn't seem relevant, that this intersection of faith and life, it's not an either or proposition. And that the world is full of God and full of all of the evidence of God's glory, even when it can be hard to find, and that we don't have to be some sort of perfect holy person to be in the church, and that there is, it's important to me, and I'm lucky to work in a place where that's the case, there is room for everyone at God's table. People are freely welcomed. And so I think it's important that people are invited to not think of faith as some separate other thing for the holy, but to see that all just opening up in everyday life, in simple interactions. It could be, take a lot of pictures. I drive over a bridge that goes over a small reservoir, and I, I take pictures of this reservoir all the time because it always looks different even though it's the same, God is in nature and it could be in anything. And so that's why that's important to me to have people who feel like God is something separate, inattainable, they're not worthy of, they don't want to bother because they've been hurt by something, that there is a place for them to meet. So if that makes sense. That's kind of where I'm coming from. 
Yeah, that makes so much sense. And you're coming from there now. How did you get there now? Because I think that's implicit in the background of your story that I think one of the taglines I've seen somewhere about you is from Wall Street to uh, from the corner office. Corner office to the church office. <laughs> There's a corner office to the church office. Yeah. So uh, how, what, how, tell us just a little bit about or as much as you want to really about that journey. Yeah. Like I said, God's preposterous ideas. I worked most of my professional life. I worked for Nielsen Media Research, the TV ratings company. Mm -hmm. And I worked there for a total of about 20 years, but in two parts. I left for a couple of years. Around 1990-ish is when I did go back to church, albeit reluctantly. I walked away from my you know, Catholic faith for a variety of reasons in my teens. And, but I always was very spiritual and I was always like exploring, seeking, you know, and I still am kind of like that. I'm always interested in all kinds of religions and different paths, not for me to change into them, but to know, to see the expression of God in, in all kinds of places. So I ended up going back to church, kind of like sidling in, like, you know, talking to God, like, what are you getting me into? But there I went. And I ended up back in the church and I was kind of shocked that I got there with questions and problems about things that bothered me about church. And I was lucky enough to encounter a priest who was very willing to entertain those questions when I had them and be able to speak to me in a way, even if it wasn't like, this is right, wrong, you're in, you're out. He brought me more deeply into the questions really. So I end up kind of getting involved in the parish that I went to and I just, you know, I was continued my faith practice from 1990, late 1990, 90, early 91, all the way through. I, I married my husband in 2007. In fact, next week is our 15th anniversary. Congratulations. So, Thank you. Yes, indeed. Uh, a bit of a late bloomer. I was 49 on the edge of 50 when <laughs> I took the leap. We got married here in, he lives, I live in Albany, New York area now. And so he, I was moving from New York City to Albany and I figured we would get married here because I had found a church I liked and was going there. So we got married at that church and I became, quickly became involved. I, because I wasn't working, I was in between jobs, not knowing what I was gonna do next. So I pretty much hang around church every day. I'd go to daily mass. They had me teaching adult faith formation. I was working on funeral ministry, like whatever needed to be done. I, I was then I, became, you know, I was a catechist with teenagers. So it was also started graduate school at St. Bernard School of Ministry and Theology, which is based in Rochester, New York. There's a branch here in Albany. And so I started going to school at night and I really needed to get a job at last. And there was a job available at the church where I work, which is different from the one where I worship. So I thought on a lark, oh, church secretary. And I, I have no skills to do that job, but why not? I'll apply for it. <laughs> and I did. And I got the job. And that was on, fortuitously, I began working at the Immaculate Conception on the Feast of the Immaculate Conception ah. in 2008. And I thought, well, I'll be here a few years and I'll get my degree in pastoral studies and theology and see what lofty place I might end up in. 
This is like the best seat in the house. Yep. <laughs> That's right. People think people think Deacon is like higher than the parish secretary. It's like, oh, no, no. no. Pastor, hey. no. parish secretary, <laughs> Deacon's wife. Then just so we're all clear, exactly. for all, especially for all the women that are saying, gee, we'd like to be deacons. Yeah. Eh, you better talk to us before you jump into that. But okay, yeah, we're glad to yeah, have you. Yeah. <clears throat> so Fran, right. could you clarify, did you drift into this kind of thing? Yeah, I or totally was there a moment? Yeah. yeah. But when the moment when you went back to church, yeah. what prompted that, may I ask? What oh, was that about? A little bit of a weird story. And uh, basically, I had read about Medjugorje in a new age magazine. Go figure, okay? And because I was kind of into a lot of new age kind of spirituality. And I read about it and I always loved Mary. Like it wasn't like I was going to be something else because I was like, I love Mary and I love the saints. And there were a lot of my Catholicity was deep within me, but it was this institutional church. I was like, no, no, too many rules, old white men. Yeah. So I, read about it and I was fascinated. And at that, from that point on, there were lots of people I was meeting. This is like 1989, 90, like that were going there or had been there. And I'm thinking, wow, isn't this like the stars aligning and my new agey way of seeing things at the time, this, you know, I was interested in Mary and my mother had been quite ill and she had kind of a miraculous recovery. And I'd been praying the rosary because even though I wasn't Catholic, I'm, of course I am Catholic. So I say, I want to go sort of give my Thanksgiving to Mary at this place and maybe get a glimpse of her. I don't, you know, I don't know what I was thinking. And I went with no intention of becoming Catholic. And then when I was there, I really felt overcome with like this need to maybe think about going to church. And I bring this up because now Medjugorje has kind of taken on a whole other sort of maybe a more negative connotation. It's not, I don't, people say, well, was it real? I, I, you know, what? Here's the miracle of it for me. It brought me back to church. I, you know, for good sure. That's um, it sometimes changed America. My, it changed my heart, and I'll never forget going to confession. They had all these little. This is before it was like super big attraction. It was like just starting to be built up, and I was like all these little like confessionals, like they were like little sheds, like open sheds that priests were in. And I was waiting in line. And I get to the confessional, which I'm not entirely even sure why I'm doing it. And I basically say that to this young priest who's all fresh-faced and smiley and newly ordained. I'm like, I don't know. I haven't gone to church and blah, blah, blah. And he was just like, but you're here. And he tell, we talk about the prodigal son story. And he, he was just so excited I was there. And I remember thinking like, wow, that's kind of weird. I thought I was going to get yelled at. So that's how I came back and I went to a church that was near my house, skeptical still. Then the priest that was there, I thought he seems normal. I could talk to him. So I did. He entertained all my questions and kept me in dialogue, invited me into ministry. He was a first person. Like he, he said to me, we need you. Like I didn't understand the concept of the church needing a lay person in that way. We need you. And this was in the early 90s. 1990, 91. Yeah. 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 Running into a good priest makes all the difference in the world. I mean, oh, think of how absolutely. this your story could have gone. I can think of a few priests that if you ran into it, it this would be a whole different conversation. We wouldn't be so, here. <laughs> that's right. 
And the winner. Yeah, absolutely. We need more good priests and less uh, scolding, yelling priests. And, you know, thank God for those people oh, that you absolutely. ran into. Absolutely. Thank God. Absolutely. And yeah, so sort of the roundabout. And I kind of drifted into this and I thought, oh my God, how am I going to do this? You know, and the best part, my job is a little bit different now. I don't sit kind of at the main desk anymore, but I really felt like one of my favorite saints, and he wasn't even a saint when I first started working here, he was a blessed, was Andre Bissette. And I don't know if you've ever oh, yeah. been to Montreal to the oratory. Yep. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I just love that idea of like this sort of doorkeeper, right? Mm-hmm. Opening the door. Sure. It Really, if you think of it, I mean, yeah, that is kind of the spirit of diaconos, right? That's right. Uh, right. And humility. And there's a bunch of doorkeeper saints. Yeah. 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 So for me, that was like a really powerful image and that I got to welcome people. And we actually do this crazy thing at this church. We answer the phone. It doesn't go to a machine unless it's nighttime or lunchtime or something. Wow. So like that alone, it's, you know, it's like at first I thought, oh my God, that'll drive me nuts. And sometimes it did, but wow. You know, a human voice at the mm-hmm. end of a phone when you call a church. Um, when you call anybody. These days, that's right. You try to, then, the people um, you're giving money to don't have time to answer the phone. <laughs> right. And then we also, like our office, we have long office hours. We're kind of a well-staffed parish, and people, I think, are often like, why do you have so many people? The place is busy. And I think it's kind of, if you build it, they will come, Right. Right. So the office became a welcoming place. And I don't think it was intentionally unwelcome prior to that. It was just such sort of different mode. Right. And it was a different. And the priest that I worked for, he was had been there like a year at that point. So I he and I worked very well together. He died unexpectedly in October. The death I'm still burning oh. terribly. So. He was a beautiful man and he was definitely he gave me a lot of latitude. To How's the transition? Do you, are you in the midst of a transition now? Yeah, we have our new pastor is coming on April 30th, Saturday, April 30th, will be what? his first mass. And he's mm. also really, I think he's going to be a really great guy and very welcoming and, you know, down to earth. Thank God. So, you know, there was like when I got here, sort of the job actually changed from what I got hired from for in a way. It grew a lot and quickly. So you're like a pastoral associate. Yeah. You're well, not the yeah, church that, secretary. Yeah, yeah. You're the pastoral yeah. associate. Yeah. So it's, it really, he gave me a lot of latitude and, you know, it was just, it was great to be able to like tell people, you could tell they were sometimes scared when they came to the door, they called. Oh, sure. The sponsor certificate or sure. they want to get their baby baptized. And yeah. They're kind of and, waiting. And they have reason based on experience to be, that, to be precise, leery, precise, by the way. You know, and people, yeah, just the other day I was working on some funeral preparation with a family and they kept saying, you know, we don't really go to church, but we're good people. And it was like, no one is asking you for any credentials. Okay. <laughs> right. We're here but that's a big... to give your sister a beautiful funeral and to offer you comfort and make a hard time easier. And I think people are kind of primed to feel like I'm not welcome or I can't come in. And then the guy is like, well, when my father died, you were nice to us too. Like as if it is a surprise Mm -hmm. that you are welcome so warmly. And it should be a surprise. It reminds me of your experience. 
<laughs> like your experience in Medjugorje, right? The, you go to the priest yeah, and you expect to get the beat up. So people come into the parish saying, well, yeah, I'm not, a, I'm not a regular, you know, I came for Christmas. And they're apologetic because they expect to be unwelcome. They expect to get the third degree. And uh, right, right, that whole right. idea of yeah, being welcoming and open and not judgmental is a key ingredient for that front office. Or that <laughs> at least as an opener. You would think at least as an opener. Where, uh, as you a, anywhere by, you walk in the door to any business, any place, and the first thing someone says is, what are you doing here? What do you want? Yeah. Does that really work? What's no your envelope number? Strategy. <laughs> no one uses that. Well, you know, I mean, this just reminds me how important ministers of hospitality are. We used to call them ushers. <laughs> but uh, we have some great ones in my parish. Uh, yeah. There's just something about these guys. And they just welcome people when they walk in. They make yeah. sure that if they're new or there's somebody we don't know, you know, they kind of try to, to watch after them and, and be available yeah. to them. And Because uh, and, we've had ushers who aren't ministers of hospitality Correct. in the past yeah. and who would just sit there and i would say to them guys why don't we help out you know especially on easter and uh, right. christmas yeah absolutely absolutely yeah, yeah the, so i think those things are important and i handle a lot of the inquiries like for baptisms and what we baptisms weddings funerals are kind of the bulk of what i'm doing now and i think that's such an important time too like i'll sell you know so yeah, definitely when people come to church, if they just come in for mass, whether it's a holiday, you know, right. welcoming funerals, like, you know, people, when they come for a funeral, everyone should be made welcome. And, you know, here we, this parish where I work is very unique. I love my parish where I worship, but this parish has got to be one of the most welcoming places. I have ever experienced. That's great. And and that's fantastic. So, yeah, it's the ministers of hospitality. The church is clean. Like a little thing like that. It doesn't have to be like out of architectural digest. It's clean. It's welcoming. It's well lit. The sound works well. The bathrooms are available and clearly marked. You know, just someone giving you a worship aid on the way in, saying welcome. Those things alone are important. So, Fran, before we get too far away from it, because we will go into these other things, I wanted to have you clarify. So when you're drifting back into the church and, you know, this other stuff you told us, and you're between jobs, why didn't you go back to Wall Street? Oh, dear God, no. Honestly, I, so I worked for Nielsen. I did sales and customer service and training. I did all these things, and I had risen to a very senior-level position. And I always said I was successful by default and not by design. And I ended up at Nielsen and I stayed there a long time. And then I left and then I came back. I was in the media business for a long time. I knew a lot of people. It was always about the people for me and the relationships. Honestly, I didn't know what else I wanted to do. I never knew what else I wanted to do. And I used to ask the people who worked for me, like, because a lot of the, most of the people who worked for me, for the bulk of my time, especially my second half, were like younger people, like 20s, early 30s, second job, maybe out of college, third job. And I would see some of them were just not happy. I'd be like, what do you want to do? I really want to be an art teacher. I'm like, well, look at you're 28. Do find a way to do that. Don't not do your dream. And I would always encourage people to go do things. Then they, some people would often ask me, well, what would you do? Like, I would always say, if no, if there were no barriers, what would you do? I'd be an art teacher. I'd 
get a PhD in history or whatever they would tell me. And, and, and so they'd say to me, what would you do? And I'd say, well, if I could, I would get a master in divinity or something like that was the only degree I was aware of. And they'd say, well, why don't you do that? I go, I can't do that. I'm, you know, 45, I'm too old. And then then I move here and I sort of like tumble into going to, you know, getting my master's degree in pastoral studies and theology. And like that manifested itself. It came, it didn't have the courage to just up and do that. But then in this period of time, I actually decided to try to start like a consulting business when I got here. And my former employer said to me, oh, we want you to stay and you can just come down here every couple of weeks. You know, it's a two hour train ride from Albany, New York and blah, blah. And the company had just changed hands at that time and things were changing. And I thought this is a good time to make a nice clean break and leave on my own terms and in good spirits and so forth. So. I didn't stay and I didn't really want to be an executive again. I didn't really have any interest in business, even though I had spent my life in business. And what did you, what did you study in school? Broadcasting and communications. Like I always wanted to work, you know, Mary Tyler Moore itis. I was in the, you know, in in the seventies growing up. So you were more interested in the creative part of communications and you ended up in the business part. Yeah. Well, but I ended up in the business part. So go ahead. Yeah, that, um, that happens sometimes with people. Yeah, you know? so so like so for me, and like I fell into this Nielsen thing, and it worked really well for me, and I did very well there. And most of it was like, it was because I liked the people I was working with, both my coworkers and my clients, for the most part. And traveled all around the United States, going to TV stations. I mean, there was a lot of fun to it. And right. I enjoyed teaching, training. I enjoyed hiring young people and sort of helping to develop them. Mm-hmm. So I look at those things now and how that works into a pastoral. It's shepherding people, right? Right. But you are obviously, Fran, you're an actual enfleshment of the category of uh, spiritual but not religious. Well, it sounds yeah, like you were very well, spiritual. So why are you now religious? Why wasn't that enough to be spiritual but not religious? What have you found? What is what is the value-added proposition to this? Well, you know, I think it has to do with, I felt like it could be just God and me and doing our thing, and that was that. And I didn't have a really good understanding of community and Eucharist in, in the sense of, you know, now I, when I think of Eucharist, I think about how we don't get something, we don't take something. We bring ourselves and we become, you know, and even when I'm talking to mm-hmm. people about the oh, sacrament, yeah. each sacrament is a step in becoming, you know, right. you're not getting a passport stamp when you get your right. baby baptized. It's a step in their becoming. And so then I started to go back to church and the power of community was apparent and powerful. It was what I needed and I didn't know that's what I needed. Like that interpersonal experience is what puts you on the spiritual side, right? That then once you started right. connecting with people right. that accompany him, the other, the relationship with the new pastor who led you, yeah, a key so ingredient it's, for I all. Think church, yeah. So when people talk about going to church, the pastor where I worship, you know, he often says to people, the obligation to be here is not, will never change God. You know, you can't change God. God's not going to like you better if you show up every week. The obligation is to be here 
first of all, for one another and to be nourished to go back out into the world and to be Christ for others. And I think that's true. And I would not have understood that before because part of me didn't feel worthy since I had so many disagreements with church teachings and challenges. So I, who needs church, right? Mm-hmm. I got Jesus. I got my saints. I got right. my right. Do it. DIY. You know, it felt good. It felt yeah. good. Yeah. DIY. But, you know, again, in fairness to the uh, spiritual but not religious people, what you're describing is a change in approach. You know, the church, like everything else, I mean, let's face it, the world has changed. And there, you know, we could spend days talking about in our lifetimes how many things that we used to take for granted or things that no one thought anything of are now like, you know, felonies. You know, like, are you crazy? You can't say that. You can't do that, whatever. And the church has also had to make a change. And like the rest of society, it is a slow change in its approach from here's the rule, we're the parent, you're the child. You will be punished if you don't comply. Mm-hmm. And what happens is when people grow up, which is essentially the way I would, when I talk to people about this, these issues, I always say, the problem is the church made a mistake by educating us, you know, and then, and now they're still saying, now go to your room. And it's like, right. you know what I mean? Like you don't tell your 45 year old daughter, go mm-hmm. to your room. You just make yourself ridiculous. I mean, this, right. the, the relationship has changed. This is an adult right. child. And you need to talk to them as an adult if you're going to have an adult relationship. And, of course, you see we have many friends who have no relationship with their children, their adult children, because they insist on treating them like they're six. And they're wondering, well, why don't they want to come over? It's like, really? You know, and the church often does that. But anyways, the church has been in the process of evolving to where you're getting answers like that which are adult answers to adult questions without threats and sanctions. And like, well, we do this. There's a good reason why this is good and it's good for you and it's good for them. And, you know, and this is what God wants is good for everybody. And you go, Mm -hmm. Oh, well, that's different than I'm, I'm going to punish you. (laughs) You know, I don't respond well to threats personally. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, you know, this is a sign of hope and change in the church that, at least in your case, you started getting some grown-up answers and responses mm-hmm. to grown-up questions, and you were treated like an adult. Right. And it allows you to make a choice and respond to something valuable. So that's great. Yeah. No, I was very lucky in that way, yeah. You are. I mean, these people aren't crazy. To, I mean, they still go in, and people oh. do these, you know, I'm daddy and you're six, and here's the deal. You know, you can take it or you can take it and like it. And they wonder, why aren't they coming? They're just like my friends with their adult children. It's like, why don't they come? <laughs> well, yeah, I think like like a situation I encountered recently where somebody's seeking baptism for their child. And I wasn't party to the conversation, but, you know, apparently they called another church in another part of the diocese that their family had a relationship with. And, you know, we said, well, are you a member of the church? And. They said, no. Well, I might grow up there, you know, my grandmother went there, my parents. And then they said, well, if you're not a member, you have to register. Basically, you had to show evidence that you were showing up and putting something. Right. And then we'll talk to you in a few months about your baptism. And needless to say, the young couple did not pursue that because they felt like it was extortion. So again, I wasn't part of the conversation, but this wasn't entirely surprising to me. And I simply said, well, you know, we hope that you do become members. We would love to see you at liturgy and children are very welcome here. It's a 
noisy church sometimes, so you'll feel comfortable. I said, but you know, my job here is to help educate you about, you know, they already had another child. They knew, understood what they were doing. And if they don't come to church every week, you know, you know, we gotta, you know, gotta love them in the door, not berate them in the door, give them impossible hurdles, ridiculous right. hurdles. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I think that becomes the issue is in some ways it's like, it's almost like you, those hurdles are made knowing people cannot or will not go to them. And I feel like, why would you do that? Like, people will never forget that. If I'm nice to someone, now I'm kind and welcoming and merciful in a Christian way. And a person gets their child baptized here. And maybe we don't see them again until that kid is six years old and they want to sign up for faith formation. Right. It's not my job to try and drag them in here every week. I would hope they would come, but I can't make them come. But they might come back at that point you know if i'm say to them well if you don't do this and this you can't have this they'll think i called that church and they were real jerks to me correct yeah i'm never yeah. going i'm going to get my baby baptized at the methodist church right they'll I'm ask no questions that. it'll be done next weekend it'll be just as good and lovely and everything else and yeah. uh yeah. or they won't yeah. do it that'll be the excuse to yeah. hang your head on you. who said that would i might not remember what you tell me i might not remember yeah. Mm-hmm. What you say, yeah. but I'll never forget what you do to me, how you treat me. You know, and again, this goes back to what we were saying before. It's there needs to be a basic recognition, as the Pope said, which I know some people don't care what the Pope says anymore. Oh, yeah, that might not know, be a I don't know, <laughs> a I don't know too when far. that happened, <clears throat> but you know, when the when Pope Francis said, you know, the church is called to form consciences, not substitute for them. Yeah. You know, this is the parents. You know, and of course, I have a background as a religious educator. The primary educators of the children are their parents. And the church is there to assist the parents in Mm -hmm. their God-given responsibility. If you're not going to be responsible, that's not on me. I don't even know why I take it on as like, well, this is on me to make sure, you know, you're doing this. It's like, no, I, I don't get that. It's like, this is between you, the Holy Spirit. I'm just on the side helping you for whatever you and you're going to get out of it what you get out of it so right. why am i making this a, adding by driving you away or making this a problem i don't understand right. you know right. these rules right. i just don't like doesn't work today's culture says oh, what can you do for me today it's a one-sided thing i want to have my child right. baptized because right. i really want right. the party right. and you're telling me i got to come here and put an envelope in and register Right. It's like you you go to the store and you pick up the package and you're expected to pay for it. Really? Yeah. Like what's this is well, crazy. I don't mind paying no. for it. I just hate to ring up my own stuff. Uh, but, but you know, I think what's interesting with the baptisms, especially, is like I definitely get calls from people who are trying to like arrange a an appointment, like they were booked the party and now they want to book the baptism. But I am completely blown away every day i've got a stack of baptisms on my desk the likes i have never seen before and i have to say that in this day and age where between just the day the sort of quality of life like every diocese this diocese has had no shortage of you know the new york state opened back the Child Victims Act, there was a, you know, people could file more suits. It's very ugly, and that's a horrible chapter of the church, and we're not going to dwell on that. So you have that, and it's in the paper, on the news. There's so many things demanding 
families' attentions, young families' attention. And yet I have the, this remarkable batch of people who want their child baptized and sincerely so, not because their grandmother told them and not because they feel entitled to it. They may not be able to understand or articulate what they want, but they want they this is they want to in in their own way be a part of something. Be I'm part so of the parish. By, I'm so struck by that because I would have to say, if it, it is more apparent in today's crop of, I mean, I must have like in the coming weeks we're doing like two to three a weekend, like well into July, and you know. How big, how big is your parish? It's about like 1,800, 1,900 families. I mean, mass attendance, you know, and COVID made, did a number on that. Uh, although we were quite active during COVID, really active during COVID to do outreach with people and keep people really engaged. Something I take almost no credit for, but my pastor and one of my coworkers. In any case, I would say average mass attendance is probably hovering around like three to 400 people when it used to be like 700. You know, that's to be expected. I think we're doing better than many others and not like it's a competition. But I think, again, you know, else you, there's people show up for all sorts of reasons. We have a lot of people who come back to church because they experience a funeral. You know, Right. Again, they've had a bad experience. They're treated kindly. If it's the family having the funeral, but even people who come to the funeral, they go, wow, I never saw a funeral like that. And it was, you know, every, again, people are welcoming. Friend. We have a very robust funeral ministry. So, again, everything from ministers of hospitality to people assisting, mm -hmm. music is good. You know, so it's a total, people feel, wow, this is nice. And I think it evokes for people memories of things of church that were good for them. So let me ask you this, Fran, kind of a two-parter. How have you found it? You've told us some stories, but as a general idea, how would, how would you say it's been working in the church now that you've done it for a while? And what is your spirituality that sustains you? Um, that's a really good question. I think working for the church is like a tremendous gift and blessing and the most significant challenge of my life. And I, those two things exist together, you know, these, it's hard, really hard sometimes, both institutionally, globally, and then, you know, at every level, globally, the uh, U.S. Catholics, and, and here in, in our diocese, not that anything's particularly awful, but like, you know, as I like to say, you know, you work in the sausage factory and pretty soon vegetarianism could start to look like a decent option. You know, sometimes I, you see things or learn things. Not that it's like nefarious. It's not about anybody abusing anyone, but just like, really? That's what we're doing? It can be disappointing, but I actually would have to add to that, that as time has gone on, I feel like, you know, I, and maybe this connects to the spirituality and how I do all this is that I have always been blessed from like an early part of my life to have a rich sense of God. I don't know why. I just always did. And I 
feel God, I see God in all of it, messy, annoying, the stupid. God's not stupid, messy, or annoying, but God is in the details of all those things. And again, it is the Holy Spirit alive and afoot in all of it. And it's a work in progress. So even in my most frustrated days, I have to say there's still some crazy gift in it all. And that is the spirituality that sustains me has always been, and is very like Jesuit type of God in all things. I, I can't tell you, I mean, sometimes I'm like, I'll be at the getting gas or something and overhear a conversation at the next pump. And I'll be like, wow, there's a homily in that, you know, like, yeah. some, like it's God is everywhere. It's not like just in this holiness, it's in all the muck and dirt and ordinariness of life. And I find that it's like, it's very beautiful to me and very... Yeah. Well, you have a big um, God. Outward. A lot of people, I find, have a very small <laughs> God, and that's why they can't find him. It's like, yeah. really? Right. Like, you can't... Right. You don't find... You, you find God at communion, yes, but you don't find him at your dinner table. You don't make well, that connection. Right. It's like, really? Right, right. And, of course, the other thing is when you talk about the messiness and it's disappointing and all that, well, the only way that you can not have that experience is you have to be the dumbest bunny in the room. <laughs> you have to be the least spiritually developed person to think, oh, this is great, boy. This is a lot better. We used to kill people for this stuff. You know, that's all you're going to do. You know, I mean, it's like, and if you're looking for any spiritual progress, you got to hope that you're in a room with some people where you go, okay, I'm a little further down the path than some of these folks. My job is to bring them along like someone brought me along. And, of course, the bottom line, the whole thing, the three of us always joke about, we almost called this podcast The Wheat and the Weeds after the parable because mm -hmm. you have all these people walking around being shocked, stunned, and deeply saddened that there are weeds. <laughs> Where are these weeds? And it's like, he told you that 2,000 years ago, <laughs> and he said, you got to wait till the harvest. It's always going to be... Why are you surprised? I don't understand this, goal, right. you know, but, you know, we are. It's really we are surprised. Yeah, but what I'm hearing, what I'm hearing Fran say, and I think this is why perhaps she has been able to be as successful. And I'm about to, you know, let me give you a fair warning. I'm about to pay you a compliment, Fran. <laughs> I see in the way you approach life that you actually see the wheat in the weed. And that's what's sustaining you. I mean, your spiritual, you know, you kind of said it in the very beginning, you see God in all things. And I kind of, you know, winced a little bit because this is a Paulist thing and we're not really trying to pump up the Jesuits. And this is, by the way, a running joke. <laughs> I <laughs> love you, not Once we start to go on the air, you'll see that this is a running joke. We actually, I'm speaking for myself, but I think I'm speaking also for Tom and Dennis, uh, the, the Jesuits, the Franciscans. Father Stu has spoken to us and he said the same thing. So I'm just joking when I say I winced that you, you know, kind of paraphrase the Jesuits slogan. <laughs> but uh, I don't wince at all. We love it. I mean, I love it. And I think it's great. But my whole point is, I think that. Whether or not you mean to do it, your spirituality comes out in the way you describe your life in the church and your life outside the church. And I said it worse than you said it because you don't make a distinction. You see your life in life. That's yeah. what I'm hearing you say. Yeah. Thank and, you. Oh, there's the intersection of faith and life. You live it. It's not a message. You're living this and you're yeah, embracing yeah. it. And it's not a job you're doing. Actually, what she said is she sees the wheat in the manure. Which yeah. is a much higher degree of spirituality than the average bear. That's when you're really cooking, when you can look at the manure level and go, oh, no, the seed is sprouting. 
Because it yeah. is. But good and for you. I, I have one thing. I mean, I'm going to add a Paulist thing, a, a hacker thing. Because, right, you see, I have my little journey in and out all these things. Is that like classic Isaac Hacker or what, man? He had to find his way to the church. I started and I left and I came back. But I think that's my little hacker connection. And then that great excitement at discovering that, like, how do we bring this to everyone, right? How do we right. communicate this to everyone? So that is my inner Paulist coming out. Well, <laughs> a, another way that you've communicated it, and you said this very early on in our conversation, and I didn't want to forget it. I want to get back to it. You did your Medjugorje thing. And then you said, you just really, as an offhanded comment said, you know, people ask you, was it real? And you're like, you know, it was real to you. And I, I, that is, I mean, I've had a couple of those instances myself where I've, my wife and I have been in a situation where we all of a sudden realized we just encountered Jesus. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I tell that story again to people, depending on where they are in their spiritual journey, they're either like, man, you're out of your mind <laughs> or you know, or they get tears in their eyes. And if it's, we are so blessed, all of us, if we can just have those moments just once, mm -hmm. you know, and yeah. then when we can share them, then maybe that's the way we evangelize, at least one way we can evangelize. Right. Well, I true. think it's, it's a matter of just at work in the field of the Lord. We keep going regardless of the opposition, the rejection. Mm -hmm. It's we're too, yeah. too, I don't know, in my mind, dumb to, to stop plowing the field. It's, you keep going. I, I think you wrote about it in one of your articles, Fran, about there's more to come. Like, the story's mm -hmm. not written yet, so our job is to be faithful, not yeah. successful. So. Yeah. And that's, I think that's the thing, like, it's sort of like for people who don't want those who aren't perfect coming in the doors, right? They need to, you know, oh, this is a place for holy people, you know, and you can't come in if you're this, that, whatever. By the same token, someone will say to me, I'm not going back to the church until they ordain women, until they're open to the, we can't wait for the perfection to come, whichever direction you think is perfection. It's in that messy middle, just kind of this great, it's like this great chain of being, right? The great cloud of witnesses, we're all just moving forward. And it's hard to do that. And we cannot, that's the community part. And the Eucharistic part is that nourishment of both wheat and word of being with one another that, you know, it doesn't make sense if I'm not doing it with everyone else. And the universality of our own church, right? Because it's happening in languages and places and ways. It's the same yet different everywhere. That's a very beautiful thing. Well, like you started out, well, your journey is mystery. It's a, how did I get here? We can all tell stories about like, what well, this wasn't part of my playbook. This wasn't a plan to be here, uh -huh. let alone doing this high-tech <laughs> stuff for a Luddite like me. <laughs> this is, was this, hey, around computers. Hand, this was your plan. Any of you guys, was this your plan? I wasn't my plan. wasn't Tom's plan. Drew? No, no, my plan had a lot more money involved. Exactly, or something. <laughs> yeah. I was gonna, you were going to yeah. be a rock and roll star, right? The beat yeah. you know, had a stage. You had a stage. Yeah, had man. fame and glory. You know, and yeah. then finally, you name up in lights. You cannot sing. Yeah, well, there is that. But yeah, it's it's just it's a long it's a long journey, and it's faithfulness over the long haul. And again, that's where, and the you know the difficult things, and of course, being the flip sarcastic individual I tend to be, when people tell me, yeah, well, yeah, I've been meaning to talk to you about that. Yeah, here. well. <laughs> you know. 
It's not time for spiritual direction right now, Drew. Oh, okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. We'll get to that Please later. Please proceed. Yeah. Please proceed with your, uh, your caustic remarks. My caustic <laughs> remarks, when people say things like, well, I'm not coming back until X, Y, and Z, and say, well, probably the reason we don't have X, Y, Z is you and all those other people already left, and you left me holding the bag. If all those people were still here banging on the doors saying, hey, what about this? What about that? We might have yeah. gotten somewhere, but everybody like, ah, no, I'm out. Okay. I'm out. Yeah. You know, that's not how change happens. You know, you don't, you know, you're gone. You don't matter. You don't come up in the calculation of anybody for anything and in, in any organization. So it's a, it's faithfulness over the long haul. That's all. That's all. There is. And the other thing is that with, with this that I always say to people is I have the same problems you have. I know more that's wrong than you know. Trust me, most your average bear. You don't know the half of it. But it is being in that crucible of having to stretch mm-hmm. yourself, of having to confront things that you wouldn't have confronted when you're doing it yourself, like I'm going to do it myself. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like marriage. You know, what do you do when you find yeah. the real person and the, the uh, idealization you had that you married is gone? You know, you're either going to work it out or you're going to get out. That's why so. you should wait until you're almost 50 because it's going through <laughs> with it. Not really good for childbearing now. Yeah. Um. <laughs> well, you know, but if I may, Dennis, what you're saying is right along, I think, very consistent with one of the things that Fran has written and that Paul Schnatchko has pointed out to all of us. And I'm going to read it, if I may. This is Fran. The reality is that all of our faith journeys are about the unlikely and often impractical matter of following our star that leads to Jesus. We keep trying to domesticate our faith journeys, and they were meant to be wild. Did I write that? Ah, well, not for so. me. <laughs> if Paul said it, I guess I did. Paul says, Paul says you Paul's did. Paul's never and, uh, wrong. He's the boss. No, he's not yeah. wrong. Yeah. And he's good looking. Yeah, I think yeah, that domestication, I think that is, is part of it, you know? I always think about when people say, like, the old church, the traditional church, and I think about some great church in Europe, right, which in the Middle Ages had a rude screen, and all the clergy were on one side, and then on the other side was, like, dogs and goats and mm-hmm. laundry hanging and tackling going on, and God only knows what else, you know, like, but isn't that, it's, but here comes everybody, you know, and yet that's still all, you know, rather than this perfect place where in the olden days, everybody knelt down and just said their prayers and was perfectly obedient. It's always Jesus. been a scandal since Jesus invited the wrong people in at the beginning. That's and right. The, and there's always a new wave of respectable people that are like, well, I don't want to be with these people. But, you know, it's interesting <laughs> because, in the, as I love to point out, in the beginning of the liturgy, you have the penitential rite where you publicly say, I am a screw-up. I am a yep. hot mess. Please pray for me. Please forgive me. That is step one after yeah. in the name of the Father. And that is your admission to the group, a public acknowledgement yeah. that you are a mess. Now, of course, a lot of people are just saying words. They don't even know what they're saying. Right. They don't think well, about it. But it's like, think about, I mean, it's like an AA meeting or an NA meeting. It's like, you know, this is, you're supposed to get this, that you're not here on yeah. your merits. You're here because, as Pope Francis says, this is a field hospital and you yeah, are wounded. Absolutely. No, that's a, that's that field hospital metaphor, I think is hugely important. So is there anything, Fran, that we haven't asked you that you'd like to talk about or you'd like to discuss? Hmm. I mean, despite all the ugly, messy, 
stuff, I have remained filled with a kind of hope for the church, even as it goes limping along. Part of it is my pile of baptisms, which is like the joy of my life at the moment. Part of it is encountering people like yourselves or people that I know, like Paul, or, you know, people that I've encountered. I really would like to be on social media less and less because I just find it exhausting. Of course, though, I'm drawn to it. But honestly, there's, for me, people like, especially on Twitter, someone, you know, like yourself, Drew, like Kaya Oaks, who I love so very much and had the opportunity to meet once, Jim Martin, brother Mickey McGrath, Dan Herandres, and uh, Heidi Schlump, who, who is on the uh, Francis Effects podcast with David and Dan Haran, like voices of people that are just entirely uplifting for me so that it's like a light, like the, it's like a lighthouse if I'm lost in the foggy sea. And that's, I just always feel this enduring sense of hope that if you all can keep moving along, I'm just going to keep doing it with you. I I went on Camino, the Camino Santiago five years ago, and it's kind of like that. Even when your energy's flagging, there's something to draw you forth. And uh, isn't that really it? Like the great pilgrimage of our life, slogging along, mud, rain, uncomfortable sleeping, snoring, <laughs> things like <laughs> well, that. And she knows everything us. <laughs> on your back. Fran, thank you very much for ending our conversation on a note of hope. Yes, indeed. It's, you, it's, you uh, make uh, us look Pauline. good, Fran. You make Pauline. us look good. Yep. Faith, hope, and love. Yes. Yep. This has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you very much. Thank you. you. Thank you. I hope, I hope it has been. I feel like, Not oh. very edifying. You're what people you. like you are why we're here too. Just what you said, right back yeah. at you, right back at you. And that's our Thank hope you. is that people are going to listen to this and say, Hey, they're not all jerks. It's a low <laughs> they need bar. some work done. It's but, a low bar, yeah. but you know, baby, the legacy of the Deacon's pod. They're not all jerks. Thank that's you. right. Well, I'll tell you, we throw the idea of perfect out the window. Jerks. That could be sort of the subtitle. <laughs> That's the title. Anyway, of the, well, I thank you one and all. The title and, of the um, episode, Fran. <laughs> they're not all jerks. They're not all jerks. With Fran. <laughs> Exhibit A. Uh, oh. Anyway, thank you guys, all of you. What a rich pleasure. Special thanks to El Jefe Paul Snatchko and our editor, David Dalt. The Deacon's Pod is powered by the Paulus Fathers. You can find us anywhere you get your podcasts and, of course, at our own website, www.deaconspod.com. That's D-E-A-C-O-N-S with an S, Deacons, plural, pod, all one word, dot com. And, of course, we'd love to hear your comments at our email address, which is deaconspod, again, with an S, deacons, at paulist.org. That's P-A-U-L-I-S-T dot org. Love to hear from you. That's our offering. We thank you for being with us. On behalf of our colleagues at the Missionary Society of St. Paul the Apostle, we wish you a future brighter than any past. Till next time.